Welcome to A Shot in the Arm. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast that explores issues in health and human rights. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play Music, Spotify, and Stitcher. Subscribe on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Shot Arm Podcast. You know the business. Give us five stars if you like us. Well, today we are talking about the greatest experiment in social services. That is a direct quote from my hero, Anurin Bevan, who was the Minister of Health in the United Kingdom in 1948 when the National Health Service was established. And in previous episodes, we've talked about biomedical advances, how they affect rights, and today we're going to talk about how we actually deliver healthcare. I'm actually pretty amazed and shocked that this is such a controversial issue. I spent years in the UN trying to navigate around the UN, um, trying to navigate around the US in the UN, I should say. Um, and, it, and it wasn't just Republican administrations. Access to healthcare was not considered a right. It, it just sort of blew me away. Well, I'm actually very simple. I'm simple, particularly when it comes to healthcare. I think it should be free, publicly delivered. Uh, paid for by the public purse, that is to say taxpayers, um, and provide health services from cradle to the grave. It's, um, you know, since 1948, we've had clear, hard data that this is the most effective, most efficient way of delivering health care. But it's a particularly challenging issue to talk about in the US. So to help us navigate through this, uh, I'm joined in this episode by a new regular contributor, the treatment literacy expert, David Evans. David, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Thanks so much, Ben. I'm really excited to be working with you after all of these years. Um, I've worked beside you and near you, but never with you. So it's great. Yeah, it's really exciting. So, um, well, tell us a bit about yourself. Where do you come from and what do you do? <laughs> um, I was uh, born and raised in a small cow town in the Central Valley of California. I was going to become a fashion designer and an artist and went to art school. And then the AIDS epidemic happened. And I got a D plus in sophomore year um, biology and never expected to have anything to do with science. And now that's all I do. Oh, my word. Well, is the rumor true that you were a go-go boy for a while? Uh, you've got it partly right. I was a topless uh, cocktail waiter in a very notorious gay bar in New York City in the early aughts. Oh, my God. Um, I worked in a seafood restaurant in the north of Kent, and I think that's the nearest I came to, <laughs> you know, bars or restaurants. But I heard you were a presenter on a local TV religious affairs midnight program, though. God, yeah, thank you for that. You've clearly been talking to my mother. We will, yeah, um, that's on a need-to-know basis, and the videotapes of that are stored in a uh, private bank in Zurich. <laughs> right. So rapidly moving on, what are, what are you hoping to look for? What are we going to look for in, in future episodes of A Shot in the Arm? Well, I, I think we're at, I mean, you can always say this, but I think we're at this really critical juncture in the epidemic where with U equals U, um, you know, undetectable equals untransmittable, there's this revolutionary thinking on the part of, uh, and a catalyst of people living with HIV, policymakers, doctors, that getting to undetectable is this really good thing that everybody's on board for and that has these dramatic impacts. But how we get there is just so complicated and it's rife with ethical dimension and personal drama and healthcare systems debates. 
um, and, and new technologies that I think are going to make a huge difference. So exploring all of those things with you just really excites me. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a, you know, hold on to your horse's ride. Um, and I'm particularly interested to see how you interpret uh, and guide us through some of the biomedical advances that are coming through. But um, in this episode, I uh, want to take a slightly different track and look at the delivery of healthcare. And um, uh, I don't know if you are one of the millions and millions who watch this show, but there is an HBO series that's just like dominating um, cable TV called The Game of Thrones. And they have this phrase, winter is coming. Well, actually, I think it came and went, actually, in the last episode. Yes. No spoilers. No spoilers. It's been fascinating to watch because um, basically all the actors are British. Well, apart from two of the leads. And you sit there thinking, oh, she was in Holby City. Oh, he was in Emmerdale. Fascinating experience. But anyway, the point is, winter is coming. Um, Is healthcare coming? I hope so. Um, I'm ever an optimist. And, you know, we've talked about this, Ben, where how did you get to this point in the UK where healthcare began to be seen as a right, uh, uh, you know, just an inherent right of every citizen? And it followed World War II, and it followed this great trauma, psychic trauma for the population. And I think we're at that place, too, in the United States, where you know the demagoguery the 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 absolute hatred towards the other i think is explicit in a way that it hasn't been in many generations to to the average white citizen middle class white citizen and and so i think that combined with the realization that obamacare wasn't this nightmare that you know impoverished everyone and that it actually led to a lot of good things i think is coming together and it does make me hopeful that Gosh, I don't know how far we'll get, but I do. I do think movement is going to happen. What What do you think the impact will be for um, local community service delivery organisations? One of the things that really interests me about the AIDS response in the United States, which I think applies in in many other health areas, is that local community organisations coalesced and found ways to deliver healthcare to populations affected by HIV themselves. Um, uh, in previous uh, episodes, we talked to Gloria Lockett from CalPEP, which is one such organization, although it hasn't actually started delivering care. It sort of refers people to mm-hmm. care. But what do you think the impact is going to be for these community-based service centers uh, around the U.S. as um, as healthcare is coming? I think they're going to exist, and I think they're going to persist. And I think part of the reason is that the advocacy movement in HIV is so incredibly strong. People are frightened of us still, believe it or not. Um, People in government, people in industry, people in the insurance industry. So um, I think that these small community clinics will continue. I think that there are going to be some challenges, though. And I think that's one of the things that you know, it's not surprising because it's a political season, not a policy season. That happens after people get to Washington in January. But but um, I, I, I think that there is going to be an appetite because the focus is on helping those who are least able to help themselves. And that, and that benefits us because it's a good, you know, political narrative to push on. And, you know, many of the drugs that we use for HIV treatment and indeed prevention increasingly um, are about to go off patent. Um, 
Is that going to have any impact on us in any way? Will will suddenly more resources become available for us? Yeah, I I, I think we've reached the the tipping point for two reasons. First, we never when when drugs HIV drugs went generic in the past, they had become obsolete. They were too toxic. They had been overtaken by things that were more convenient, um, just were more potent. That's not so much the case anymore. We're introducing new drugs that are only incrementally better than the ones that are going off patent. So you could still make a a valid medical argument for keeping them. In fact, the American guidelines panel, um, treatment guidelines panel, kept uh, tenofovir on the guidelines as a as a valid first option. Um, and so even after it went generic, so, so I think you've got evidence of, of now we've got these drugs having gone generic that are medically, medically valid. But then there's this other side, which is that with Obamacare came a new opportunity for community-based clinics to pay for themselves and to, um, to make up for losses, um, from the federal government. And that was that when they became clinics and got their own pharmacies, they now could take advantage of special pricing, whereby any drugs that they dispensed, they got a rebate back from the pharmaceutical company that made them. Now, if you take a drug like tenofovir, which had been on the market forever and had gone up in price by many, many fold, every incremental increase in cost to the, to the general market that was a rebate that came back to these community-based organizations. So they were making a lot of money off of these older drugs. When tenofovir went off patent, that went away. That All those rebates went away. Um, and, and similarly, even without going generic, as we get newer drugs, there's less of a rebate. So, um, so that money that's been funding things like transportation, um, extra healthcare navigation, most of our prep programs across the country are funded through this mechanism. That could dry up unless we put something else in its place. So two points. I, um, I guess I just want to uh, um, challenge, maybe that's too strong a word, but just raise one question, which is... Um, I'm really concerned that we keep investment in research and development in HIV, and I, I'm anxious that um, you know, good enough uh, becomes no need to do anything more. And and there there you know there are things coming down the um, down the pipeline like um, long acting injectables that that I hope could have um, uh, a huge difference. And I guess I'm really keen to make sure that we we find ways as healthcare evolves. To keep that keep that innovation, um, but my I, I guess my question for you though is um, does is there a risk? This is going to be a really bizarre question, but is there a risk that as we move to generics, resources for community based service providers might actually go down? I, I love bizarre questions, so thank you. And um, I think the answer is maybe. Um, and uh, it, and it remains to be seen. Um, right now, we're doing okay because there are en en enough other older drugs where the community centers are getting a rebate. I think those are going to continue to be in use because they're very good drugs. They're very tolerable. They're very effective. Um, I think the new big thing on the market in the future is going to be long acting, but that's going to come with its own really intense host of challenges, which we will explore on another podcast. 
Um, so I, I think I think they're going to be okay, but I do think resources could diminish, and 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 we'll see what that looks like. When we talk about rebates, where actually does this money come from? Uh, I mean, who who pays? Um, and then and then you say that the the companies and presumably the health insurance companies sort of give it back in some way but where does it come from ultimately sure so the the it's called 340b programs medicaid programs and it was designed to shore up hospitals that were serving particularly disadvantaged communities. Uh, you know, the unfortunate reality of healthcare in the United States is um, it was called healthcare by emergency room, and and for many people in in this country, and um, there there was a, a great need to make sure that those kinds of places could. Uh, keep services available for people who m might be better served by going to a regular doctor um, at, in a non-emergency setting. And so one of the ways to do that was to offer these special prices um, to those pharmacies, those clinics, um, and allow them um, to bill um, at the sort of standard rate that every other you know, insurer had to pay. So then the, the clinic kept the difference. And was able to, and was supposed to be using it to go back right into those kinds of services for the people who were prescribed the drugs. Wow! And 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 where did the uh, Ryan White Act fit into all of this? And and, and maybe you could explain a little bit for um, people who aren't familiar uh, just what the Ryan White uh, Ryan White Act is. Sure. So Ryan White was this really courageous, um, can I curse, um, F-U uh, kind of little boy. Um, he had hemophilia. It was Indiana, Pete Buttigieg country. But way back in the 1980s, he was diagnosed he had, uh, at the age of 13. Um, his school, uh, the threat, his home was threatened to be firebombed. Um, and he was courageous. And he said, fuck you, no way. And his mom was right behind him. And he fought to stay in school. They eventually did move school district. And he, he became this incredible activist. Um, right uh, just after he died, we signed what is uh, an, a large act, a healthcare act named for him, which was designed to give healthcare to people with HIV who could not otherwise afford it. It subsequently expanded dramatically and came to include um, direct purchase of HIV medicines and and other medicines in some states. Gosh, why on earth is this such an issue in the United States? Why can't the US, you know, follow the UK like it always does in James Bond movies <laughs> and just implement a national health service? Why can't it do that? You know, so this is, I, I knew you were going to be asking about the politics and the, and the particular plans that are on the way. And, and, and I hope you'll, you'll um, do me the, um, uh, allow me to take you to the psychology couch for a moment. Um, because the, we're, we're not at a place, as I said, of the policies. We're at a place of the politics. And politics is about money and emotion. And, and, and that's, that, that's what changes things. And, and I think that... It's important to keep that in mind right now because we have a, a, a Republican majority in the Senate, um, which is going to be really hard to change, and and they have the filibuster. So even if we get a new president and a con and, you know and a, and a House that has the power to put forward legislation, it's got to be tailored to those serving in the Senate. And I say that because 
we've proved over and over again in psychology that the risk of loss is a far more powerful motivator than the potential that you might gain. And the job that the Democrats have taken on is to sell all of the wonderful things that could happen if we implemented Medicare for all. But the Republicans are going to say, yeah, but you're going to take away healthcare from grandma or X and X person. And every healthcare expansion in the US for the last 40 years, that's exactly what has happened is, you know, the folks come out, say the sky is falling, we're going to have death panels, we're going to do this and that. Um, So the Democrats have to be very, very careful and calibrate this Medicare for all message um, so that it appears appealing um, to those who understand Medicare um, as this great thing that older people get, um, but that kind of shovels in secretly a lot of other really wonderful things too. Gosh, extraordinary. So so um, maybe we could just sort of focus a little bit on Medicare for all and what it actually means. There was a fantastic interview on um, Pod Save America. John Favreau interviewed uh, A.D. Barkin, who has advanced um, ALS disease, and and it was just incredible hearing this computerized voice, which um, you know he he managed to get going by moving his eyelids. And and Ad made a really compelling, heart wrenching case for uh, Medicare for all. But I came away wondering, well, what exactly is he talking about? So so what is Medicare for right. all? Right. So I I think if there's one thing that all of the the individuals, the lawmakers who proposed. Um, bills, any kind of legislation. It's really about extending healthcare to every person who needs it in the United States in a manner that is affordable to them. And, um, and, and, and there are different ways of getting there, even though they're all falling under the same name, Medicare for All. Um, it was interesting because the bill that um, the gentleman was testifying for is, is one that actually excites me a great deal. Pramila Jayapal, one of our newer House members, um, fantastic, has introduced a very generous and exciting and interesting bill. Um, one thing that's interesting is that there is a... Um, a clinician who is part of the Physicians for National Health Program, no lefty, and he uh, named Adam Gaffney. And, you know, he was asked um, the big million dollar question, which is, how are you going to pay for it? And will Medicare for all actually reduce healthcare spending, which is what Bernie Sanders says, which is even Pramila Jayapal says. And he says, look, I'm an optimist. I do support Medicare for all, but... I'm not sure it's going to reduce spending. And and the reason he said is that hospitals, which is where most of the money you know, gets taken out of the system where the expenses are, um, you could get rid of the profits, you could get rid of the executive compensation. There are so many things you could do, but he says it's hard for him to imagine getting from a healthcare system that costs 17% of our GDP to just 10.5%, which is what it is in Canada. Um, just simply on a Medicare for all program. But one of the things that I love about Pramila Japal's um, proposal is transparency. One of the centerpieces is that the costs for a Band-Aid or a cotton swab in this emergency room 
in Kokomo, Indiana or Florida is exactly the same as it would be in Metro Los Angeles. And you would be able to compare those bills and those costs across the board. And it's, it's opening up those kinds of uh, uh, things to the sunlight um, that allows us as activists to walk in and not only get the bills passed, but to keep them clean for years to come. Yeah, I mean, transparency gives citizens the ability to look at, you know, what they're investing in, whether as individuals or as collectors, as as voters. Um, what are your views on Bernie Sanders' healthcare proposals? You know, it's it's similar in that he... He's talking about what Medicare will give you, and and that's okay. He's not talking about how he's going to pay for it, and and that's that's going to come. That's that's winter as well as you, if you will, um, and it is coming um, in the in the campaign season. But um, you know something that I find that's interesting is he's more generous than all of the other systems out there, um, the UK included. You know he's you know dental vision. Um, no copays of any kind whatsoever, and um, a- and I think that is really really appealing on an emotional level and a psychological level. But surprisingly, this issue of copays also on a practical level, and that's another you know thing that Gaffney points out, which is that even if if you reduce a person's copay to a nickel, um, somebody's got to collect those nickels. And that costs money. So doing away with copays altogether reduces this potentially huge administrative cost. So I just think there are really interesting things like that that are factored into Bernie's plan and other plans like that. Taking them apart in detail is going to be really fascinating. And 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 I think the issue of copays is particularly keen for people on PrEP. That was one of the things that we 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 were really struggling with when PrEP was launched in the United States is copays for lab visits, for doctor visits, for these young guys, many of whom who didn't have health insurance because they didn't think they needed it. And hopefully young women yes, well, and older women. Yeah. And, and, and I think the point you make about PrEP is that it's really not just about the drug. It's actually access to prevention services. But that that's a, a whole different discussion. Uh, what about some of the other candidates? What about um, Elizabeth Warren? She's she go, you know, she's a policy wonk. What are her views on healthcare? You know, oddly enough, um, Warren, who I have tremendous respect for, and in fact, her ability to make common sense um, interpretations of very complex financial information is right spot on. The problem is she's signing on to other people's legislation and not necessarily introducing a really thorough platform of her own. And I, and I think that will come in time. I think what's going to be really interesting is to look at, you know, Sherrod Brown and some of the other, you know, so-called centrists who are putting forward less ambitious plans, who are saying, no, you know, we're not going to take away private insurance. This will be a very gradual approach. And and I want to see what kind of traction that gets. I want to see what kind of arguments that inspires, because I think that's when the reality starts to come out in these in that awful sausage making. And and the the criticism of uh, Bernie's plan was that it was so rapid that the transition could be very very disruptive. Um, on Elizabeth Warren's um, plans, I mean, I, I think she's a terrific terrific candidate and and has a really lot of sensible things to say. In some of her early op eds about healthcare, she talked 
you know, she talks about drug prices. Everyone's talking about drug prices. But I was a little bit concerned that she didn't distinguish between, um, you know, R&D companies and generics. And, um, you know, and that sort of takes us to, um, you know, the guy who was, oh, I forget his name, but the um, the uh, farmer bro right. who's, uh, I think, now incarcerated, isn't um, he? Yes, Martin Shkreli. Um, he was a... a, a- a con artist really more than anything but uh, and and really the the archetype evil villain smirking his way and and tweeting his way through his uh prosecution um with his lawyer by his side just groaning and saying please don't do this um but no i mean he was smart he took a drug that was rare that was only made by a um a single generic manufacturer he bought it. It had been pennies and he raised, jacked up the price by 4,000%. And um, because the drug was mostly purchased by hospitals, um, that left a lot of very vulnerable people potentially in the lurch. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not the only example of a, of a generic manufacturer doing the same. We had the problem with EpiPens and the extraordinary expense for that. Insulins, which are incredibly expensive and they're having difficulty keeping in stock. There was a cardiovascular medicine that another generic manufacturer got in trouble for, for raising the price by 300%. So... It, it's tough. They're, and, and the thing about uh, generics is they don't put in the money for R&D. And that's what we've, we've really got to find creative ways of, of finding investments for. And the market helps a little bit, but ultimately it's about return. And if you're investing in things that are going to take a long, long time to develop and there's a, a risk of them not, you know, not panning out, um, how do you do that? And, and uh, you know, for me, that's a, that, that's a major you know, a major issue that I, I, I think through, I think through quite a lot, but, um, what would you say to, uh, the, you know, some of the, um, let's say Republican proposals, well, are there any Republican <laughs> proposals around healthcare besides getting rid of Obamacare? Yeah, I don't think that there are. Um, you know, it's interesting because the most conservative think tanks were the ones that produced Obamacare, um, right? So um, just, you know, 12 years later under a different, uh, you know, uh, political party. And now, yes, they're spending all of their time trying to get rid of it altogether. So I don't think, no, there is no affirmative plan for healthcare. There's only destructive plans on the Republican side, which I think is a really unfortunate missed opportunity. And that, and that really does speak to the hyperpartisanism that exists, not just in the US, it's going on um, all over the world, really. But um, you know, I, I I think people sometimes have a, a false sense of this golden era of politics where, you know, senators, you know, drank whiskey and smoked cigars and worked out deals and in collegiality. But but I do think there is something to the fact that there was an ability during a less partisan era to accomplish great things um, uh, in coordination and collaboration with your the other side of the aisle. So, yeah, and, and I'm. So I'm disappointed. I mean, one of the things I I struggle with is okay. So you know, I was brought up in a country that has free healthcare from cradle to grave, paid for by taxpayers. Um, and in the 2000s, I um, was involved in trying to mobilise workplace programmes, uh, large employers, both in the public and private sector, in South Africa, particularly in South Africa. And there was a moment, maybe for six months, a year, where there were more people accessing HIV medications through these workplace programs and there were um, through the national programs. And this was an extraordinary aha moment for me because 
um, you know, it, it was evident that there was no monopoly of wisdom and that there are different ways of doing things. And I thought, my gosh, we have really got to, you know, we, we've got to approach this from all, all angles. And, and I think there is, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but there is something very appealing um, about, you know, as we transition longer term to a more sane and sensible way of providing healthcare, using the workplace and the workplace is, you know, whether it's formal or informal, it's so essential to everybody's lives that there has to be a way of, of um, incorporating wellness and healthcare into that as we try and sort out these really structural problems about how we deliver and fund healthcare. Absolutely. And, you know, I think HIV activists and civil rights um, activists would shudder a bit. In the U.S., thinking about, you know, taking a large employer like Amazon and having these programs that were openly devoted to people with HIV, I mean, just because of the stigma and all of that sort of thing. But it's interesting because I remember designing a CME program with a clinician at the time of PrEP introduction in the U.S. CME. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, continuing medical education, um, these programs that doctors can take to keep their license, um, pardon the acronym. Um, but, you know, we were talking about how you do stigma-free um, uh, 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 sexual risk-taking um, and how do you how do you teach someone who is uncomfortable talking about sex to talk about it with their patients? And there was this really interesting thing where she said, look, just tell everyone that you test everyone, period. And, and she was right. I mean, it's not that these people necessarily became fantastic sources of non-stigmatizing discussions, but at the very least, the diagnostics were happening because they were able to introduce it in just this universalized manner and say, you know what? I test everybody. It's not just you. Yeah, and, and I think there were some, you know, there continue to be some extraordinary innovations that, that, you know, frankly, public sector, you know, public sector providers can't do as rapidly. Um, just briefly changing the subject, there's been some news recently uh, I think from Europe, um, about a trial called Partners, which has basically demonstrated that um, if you're HIV positive and you're um, undetectable, you are untransmissible. What are your thoughts about this? And, and, and I'm particularly interested in how you think the media are covering this. You know, it, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, Partners really just validated the experience of a lot of clinicians and a lot of people with HIV and their partners, their HIV negative partners, where, whereby, um, you know, in, in particular in certain communities, we saw large increases in the number of people reporting condomless sex. Um, and we saw sometimes corresponding rises in STD rates, but we didn't necessarily see it with HIV. Um, and that was something that went back many years. And so partners and, and the options study, you know, just proved that if you take a group of people and they are fully suppressed, the likelihood that they will pass on HIV to their partners is essentially nil. Um, that's changing everything. But it's also interesting because um, I, in, in terms of criminalization, which is a huge issue in the U.S., um, I was talking to a human rights lawyer, a defense attorney, 
um, who does a lot of work around criminalization and HIV and has for over a decade. And as this U equals U message was really getting coming to the fore, she said, you know, as a defense attorney, the other thing that worries me, though, is are we going to start prosecuting people for not being undetectable? Um, and and I, so I think that um, it's an interesting thought experiment. I, 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 I don't know how that translates into the broader, you know, public relations, you know, uh, of this message or how, how people in community, you know, live with it. Um, but um, I do think we should be aware that it's not this simple thing and the genie is out of the bottle. So let's be prepared. And, um, you know, it's yet another excuse to say we've ended AIDS or about to end AIDS. You know, a month doesn't go by before, you know, without us having found some exciting way that's going to radically alter everything. Now, I should say I'm a huge, huge supporter of you. Oh, me too. Me too. So, yeah, so impressed with Bruce Richmond. And we had Yvette Raphael on a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'd also flag up for our um, for our supporters, our friends of a um, a shot in the arm podcast, uh, the views of the Hungarian activist who lives in Berlin, Tamas Berecki, who I think absolutely rightly points out that there's a third view that we've got to work on, which is basically universal access. Yes. And it's great for us to talk about this in places where we have resources, but where we don't, U equals U is something we still have to fight for. Yes, I mean, it's something that's aspirational, even, you know, within the United States. I think that's something that I've, as I came to know people from outside of the U.S. more and more through the 90s and into the 2000s, and they came here and or heard about our healthcare system or lack of a healthcare system in many cases, they were appalled. And, you know, and and when I'm out in, uh, around the U.S. Or, or talking to activists in many parts of the South, in particular, in, in impacted communities, you know, universal access to healthcare and medicine is far from, from the truth. You know, where things like transportation, getting, uh, uh, you know, in a discreet fashion from a small town to the big city to get your care and your medicine is a really, it's a big hassle. So David, I think, I think that's it. I think that's a wrap. I think there is a lot that we have got to cover in future episodes, both uh, about the science, but how we deliver the science and do it in a way that supports and enables people. David, thank you for being a shot in the arm. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Well, that's a wrap for today. Thanks to Erica Spera, our producer from Newsdoc Media. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify and Stitcher. And you can subscribe to us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Shot Arm Podcast. That's at Shot Arm Podcast. And if you like us, give us five stars. Brilliant. Okay, thanks, David. And thanks to everyone. Have a great week.